As a child, in the context of parental investigation, typically within the context of getting in some type of trouble, I remember my parents asking me a question like, why did you do such and such? To which I would often reply, "Uh, Steve was doing it, or Tommy was doing it, or Dave was doing it, and it seemed okay. Then the interrogation would typically intensify, and one of my parents would say something like, but I told you to do blank, fill in the blank. And no doubt everyone in this room can identify with that scenario. Either you're on the one hand as a parent now saying the, playing the parent role, or you can perhaps remember as a child a young person doing the same thing as a child. Or maybe you're an adolescent age and you're going through that same struggle even now and it's very familiar. All of us have a frame of reference for getting busted by our authorities and then scrambling to get an answer. But at the end of the day, it's our creative meandering from the established code of conduct which our authorities have said, this is what you need to do. Sadly, many church leaders and churches in our days seem to be characterized by creative meandering from the biblically prescribed function of a church. At every turn, evangelical leaders are gathering survey teams together, doing market analysis and trying to figure out their identity and their mission and their vision for Jesus' church. When I read publications and listen to pastors, whether locally or nationally, I am left wondering if perhaps the Bible is mute about such matters as the mission and vision of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This, this cannot be true, is it? I mean, the church is the most important organization on the planet. For it is in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ where the exclusive message of forgiveness for our sins is proclaimed. There's no other place in all of the planet where the ways and means of our sins being forgiven, us to go from perishing to life, is proclaimed. Furthermore, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the only place, the exclusive place, where God may be glorified through people as they go through Jesus Christ and give God pleasure. Furthermore, God has said concerning this church, this exclusive means of generating praise to God, an exclusive means of disseminating the message of forgiveness, God has said of this church that we really aren't much of anything according to the flesh. We aren't many wise, we're not many mighty, and we're not many noble, 1 Corinthians 1.26. So I'm left scratching my head and wondering, has God left the visionary plans for the ultimate success of the most important organization in the whole entire planet, up to the creativity, minds, and power of people that God Himself has said really aren't all that impressive, really aren't all that skilled, really aren't all that noble, really aren't all that powerful, really aren't all that smart. This cannot be the case. I fear that at the last judgment, many Christians are going to be called to give an account before the one who bought the church with his own blood. And much like many of our parents, the Lord Jesus will ask, why? Why did you do such and such? And like little disobedient, simple-minded, guilty children, many will have to say, Pastor so-and-so was doing it. Christian so-and-so said it was okay. It seemed like the right thing to do. And no doubt the king will sternly answer, but I told you clearly to do this. So, in light of the importance of the issue, exclusive means of proclaiming forgiveness of sins, exclusive means of generating glory and praise to God, and in light of the certainty of accountability, we're all going to stand and give an account to God for the things we've done in the flesh, and the pervasiveness of confusion and reinvention within a confessing evangelical church, it seems appropriate for us to ask a question today. What is Jesus' plan for growing His church? Does He have anything to say about it? I mean, after all, we are a church, right? It's an appropriate question to ask. So today we'll consider the sovereign Christ design for church growth. It's incredibly important because it's a decree from the sovereign one who's the head, the owner, the ultimate judge of the church, the one whom every single one of us will give an account to. And if we are a church, we should be aiming to please this God, please this Christ, 
He is the ultimate senior pastor of the church, if you will. He is the good shepherd. He is the one whom we ultimately have to do. So what is the sovereign design? What is Christ's design? And we'll be in Ephesians 4. If you're not already there, you can go ahead and turn there if you would. What is the sovereign design for church growth? First, in chapter 4, verse 11, we'll consider the gifting of some to lead and feed the flock. The gifting of some to lead and feed the flock. And then verses 12 through 16, the growing of believers with a specific goal in mind. A growing of believers with a specific goal in mind. So gifting and growing, if you want to be simple. Christ does have a plan. It's His church. He hasn't left us clueless. We're not scratching our heads. We don't have blank sheets of paper trying to come up with a vision and a plan. He's actually said something and told us to do something. So what we want to do this morning is just submit to the head, the church, the head of the church and just just read what he says and hopefully it won't be too difficult i won't get in the way we can just read what the text says and make appropriate application and hopefully be better christians because of it so let's go ahead and look first at the gifting of some to lead and feed the flock and this is in verse 11 but actually before we look individually at verse 11 i want us to jump back to verses 7 through 10 because we have to get the the theme, if you will, or the, the context that is driving into this giving of these gifts. In verse 7 it says, to, But to each one of us, that is to Christians, each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. That's quoting the 68th Psalm, and looking back to the, the redemption from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And here the... The Apostle Paul is quoting it and and making the point of of what Christ has done as He has brought people out of bondage. Verse 9, it says, Now this expression, He ascended, what does it mean that He also has descended into the lower parts of the earth? And that verse has led some people to have get into the interesting theological position that Christ actually went to hell and, and that's the dissension there. I, most theologians, and I would agree, would take this as that His dissension would actually be His incarnation. Coming here to, to here to earth is his, his dissension. And then His ascension would be into heaven. But just in case there's any lack of clarity on that as we go through it. Verse 9, Now this expression, He ascended, what does it mean that He also has descended into the lower parts of the earth? Verse 10, He who descended is Himself... Also He who ascended far above all heavens so that He might fill all things. And we don't have time to unpack all of that, but there's three things that I really want you to see as it drives into our context this morning. First, verse 7, these gifts are supernatural gifts of grace. Look at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Who gave the gift? Christ. It's a supernatural gift. It is a grace gift. Christ gives the gift. Secondly, the giving of these gifts are inextricably linked together with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, or simply the triumph of God. You see it there in the text. He ascended, then also descended, and then ascended. That is the picture of Him going all together, descension here to earth, the incarnation, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension to the Father's own right hand. So there is Christ all packaged together, the ultimate mission of Jesus Christ. And attached to that is the giving of gifts. So ultimately proclaiming the the triumph of God in Christ. And thirdly, the purpose and mission of Jesus, His coming down and then His going up, along along with His giving of these gifts, was to declare His sovereign lordship or His fill of all things. Did you catch that in verse 10? The last phrase, the last clause? So that He might fill all things. That's the purpose statement. So there's a statement there of Christ intentionally coming and doing everything He did in His incarnation, His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, and along the way giving gifts to men as He rescues them out of bondage. Ultimately, with the aim or the purpose of trumpeting Christ's sovereign lordship over everything. Do you think of your spiritual gift as that? As an amplifier or an amplification of Christ's sovereign lordship. Flip back over to chapter 1 real quick. 
keep your thumb in Ephesians 4, but look at verse 10. Many would say this is one of the main themes of Ephesians here, uh, compacted into a verse. End of verse 9, he purposed in him, look at verse 10, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth, that is, uniting everything together at the feet of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he's doing all these things, these in him statements of chapter 1, that everything will be summed together and Christ will be seen as glorious and altogether lovely and as the one to be worshipped. Same thing in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. This is sovereignty talk. This is accomplishment talk. I take this to mean that the mission of Jesus and the work that He accomplished was, part of it is to endow the church with supernatural gifts in view of us, believers, trumpeting and proclaiming His supremacy and His absolute triumph over everyone and everything. That is one of the main purposes of Him giving these gifts. So we would be getting closer to realizing the reality of the King exalted and the King that will one day come again. So that's the contextual stream right here that feeds in. It rushes into verse 11. So it's not just He gave gifts to He gave some as apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists, yada, yada, yada. No, it's the sovereign Lord who rules over everything has triumphed over death, the grave, and Satan. And He sits enthroned on high. And as He defeated all things and crushed the devil's head, He has given gifts to men so that we might come alongside Him and trumpet His supremacy and His excellencies. That's what His point is. And now we jump into verse 11 with the stream of Christ's greatness and His mighty rule over all things. And we get to verse 11, he says, And He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. His giving, again, is Christ and is associated with His grace or His gift. But when you read 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12 and you read the spiritual gift passage, a lot of times you see that He gives, God gives gifts. He may give helps or service he may give some that are teaching. He may give these other gifts. He gives the, gives the gifts, the specific gifts. But here in verse 11 of chapter 4 of Ephesians, we see actual people given. Do you see that? He gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. We'll just go through them briefly. No doubt you're familiar with these terms. The apostles, reference here is to the apostles of Christ. And when you think apostles, think authority. These are, these are men who have been dispatched by God, by Christ with, with His authority, His sovereign authority to go and to proclaim and to say exactly what Christ has said. They are gifted as apostles to speak on behalf of Christ and to be leaders. When you think of apostles, think Peter, think John, think Paul. They are linked, of course, to the prophets as the mouthpieces of God. They declare and reveal the truth of God. And I think these prophets refer to New Testament prophets serving alongside of the, of the apostles as the foundation of the church. You can flip on back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. He's talking about us as fellow citizens with the saints in God's household. And he's got this architectural framework, a metaphor going here. Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. So it's the picture of the church being built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and Christ being the cornerstone of the church. In the light of the revelatory nature of their ministry and clear statements in the Scriptures, like Ephesians 2.20, this seems to be a once-laid foundation. So I wouldn't believe that prophets are continuing today giving new revelation of God, saying this is what the Lord says in terms of being, being communicated through them. Prophets have passed with the apostolic age. We do not have prophets and apostles today. And Paul moves on to other people as gifts. He goes on and talks about two different gifts here that, that seem to be in effect today. We see these two people, the evangelists and the pastor teachers. First, the evangelists. And confession time, when I think evangelists, I think of a guy with a really bad suit and a, probably a worse haircut. You know, just... The, the bad haircut just out to here and the bad suit and maybe worse hermeneutics. Just, just running around the countryside and going and, and, um, 
That's not what I think the, the Bible has in mind here. Philip's ta- called an evangelist in Acts 6, Acts 21. Itinerant ministry, he is proclaiming the gospel. He's going forth proclaiming Christ's greatness. But then also you have the, the, the young pastor Timothy. He's called to do the work of an evangelist within the local church. So what that might that be? Well, equipping the saints for ministry, as we'll see it unfold here a little bit. So no doubt, Timothy also had to go out and proclaim the gospel to unbelievers, go out from the church and talk to people. And as, as unbelievers would come, he would have to speak with them. But also the sense of Ephesians 4 is that of equipping. So the evangelist is tied to the local church, doing some sort of equipping within the church to help further the ministry of the gospel. So it's not so much a disconnected lone ranger guy running around as much as it is a guy connected to the church and going out from the church and doing things and then also equipping the church. That's why at OBC we try to do different classes on evangelism. You have an apologetics class in IBS on Wednesday night or everyday evangelism class that's taught on Sunday mornings where you have different classes that actually train you to communicate the gospel. We're trying to fulfill the ministry of an evangelist to, to help us to go out and proclaim the gospel more effectively and more clearly more boldly, more passionately. Then you have this, this last group here, the pastor-teachers. And this is grouped together uh, syntactically as, as, a, as, as one office, the pastor-teacher. It's a shepherd who teaches. All pastors are teachers, but not all teachers are pastors. These men are those whom God has gifted for the purpose of leading, protecting, feeding the flock. Much of the shepherd imagery that we looked at last week in the Good Shepherd of John chapter 10 applies here. Someone who is going to stand up for the flock and defend the flock, teach the flock, take care of the flock, that sort of thing. Notice it doesn't say pastor marketers or pastor entrepreneurs or pastor CEOs. No, shepherd teachers. Pastor teachers, that's what God's given all right, so we looked briefly at this, so we see that the gifting of some to lead and feed. Now, now let's look at it, the second aspect of Christ's sovereign design here, growing. Growing believers with a goal in mind. And this will take up the bulk of our time in verses 12 through 16. Growing. What is the point? What is the point of these gifts, and how do they function? Well, look at verse 12. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. It's nice the way this verse breaks out with these three prepositions right in the front, just dropping them right down for us to see what the purpose is. He gives these gifts for equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. We'll look at each of them individually, but first the equipping of the saints. The term equipping here is really really what begins to help us to understand Christ's sovereign design for the church. It carries with it the idea of preparing or completing or training. It is the idea of making something adequate or sufficient for something. There's a goal in mind here by those who are being equipped by those who lead. But we'll learn something else which, with which there's a lot of confusion today in the church. It's who does he, who's the object of this equipping? Notice what it says? Equipping who? The saints. Now, for those of us that have a Catholic background, we might trip on that for a second. That's, that's you and I as believers. It's not necessarily whoever the Catholic Church may or may or not have canonized or beautified. Is that what it is? Beautification? It's not that. It would be believers. It is the object of the equipping is the believer. We learned something right away about the church. One of its chief designs is to equip believers for something. Notice right away what it does not say, that the object of the pastor-teacher... And the leaders in the church is to amuse unbelievers in their worldliness. That's not what it says. It says that they are actually there to equip the saints, those who have been called. There's a, there's a purpose right away. There's a job, the equipping of the saints, the making of the saints as adequate. Well, you roll that back into the pastor-teacher, it's pretty indicative of what they're supposed to be doing. And we'll unpack this as we get going a little bit further but equipping of the saints. And what, what's the purpose? Now Now they're being equipped for the work of service, as the verse goes on. The leaders in the church had to equip the saints to do something, to do the work of ministry. The word used here is the same root that's translated deacon in other passages. It's the idea of waiting tables or, or doing humble service. It's doing whatever needs to be done. It is humbly coming alongside to serve. 
And it's not a one-time service. It would be an ongoing pattern of the believer's life. Serving. So you see the flow. The pastor teacher uses his gifts. Preaching. Teaching. The evangelist uses the gifts. Preaching. Equipping. Feeding the flock. And in the process, they are equipped to serve. And the pastor is not like the unbiblical stereotype would go, that he's the hired guy, the guy that everyone pays to do all the work. No, that's not the biblical picture at all. He's the guy who studies in the book, spends his time in the book, and then equips the saints, and then all of us do all the work. That's the picture. Equipping the saints to do the work of service. So preaching and teaching of the Word by gifted men is what God's designed for you as a believer to have your giftedness refined and sharpened so that you might be equipped to do exactly what you're supposed to do, so that you would be functioning properly in the body of Christ. Simply, it's so that you would serve and serve rightly. Well, continuing on in verse 12, we see even more. For the building of the body of Christ. So we have the equipping of the saints for the work of service, and now we see how this comes together for the building up of the body of Christ. So now we see the goal. This is the purpose. This is the goal. You want a purpose-driven church? Here it is. Building up the body of Christ. This is what we're supposed to do. Paul uses the metaphor to depict a, a body of, that, that is here. But it's, it's not a body here in per se. It's, it's, it's a building that's under construction. It's being built up. The construction has not yet been completed. We are still being built together. The same term that Matthew would have used Speaking of Jesus, when Jesus said, I will build my church. I'll construct my church. I will build my church up. And notice the corporate nature of the church. It says the body of Christ. It's not the individual Christian, though there's an individual aspect. You are individually being built up in the body of Christ as you function with one another. But it's not you sitting off under a mango tree somewhere with your Bible, just you and Jesus running the Lone Ranger Christianity. It's you within the body of Christ together, serving one another and being built up together. It's a corporate picture here of the body. Building up the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how does this happen? Well, simply as the saints are taught the word, they're equipped and then they serve. We serve one another, we build up the body of Christ. We employ our spiritual gifts, which Christ has given with the purpose of edification and building each other up. And that is his goal. But don't, don't miss the flow. God gives gifts. The pastor, teacher, the evangelists, the apostles, prophets, all together. Now we, we preach what the apostles and prophets have given us. And what is the purpose? To equip the saints for the work of ministry so that we would go ahead and serve. And then what would happen then? The serving of, in the body of Christ using our gifts, it builds up the body of Christ. We cannot miss that. It's so simple. If, if you put a stick in any of these spokes at any of these points, you go over the handlebars as a church. I mean, some, some folks wander off these ancient prescribed paths in pursuit of something else or something more. They're, they're following some strange aromas and going off and wandering and meandering off of the path. There's a clog in the artery of the church if we meander from this. Sadly, too many people that pose as pastors are pumping spiritual saturated fat into the veins of their churches. And as a result, congregations are out of shape, lethargic, and sadly, out of the will of God. We sometimes have lost the whole purpose of the church with all the talking about purposing of the church. For instance, I get this in the mail telling me how to be a good pastor by a local organization of a large denomination right here in Omaha and it tells me how to be an effective pastor this might as well have been written by Oprah this, this is what, nothing about teaching nothing about shepherding nothing about protecting but assume the best in people and approach them from that perspective see problems as opportunities assume you're going to win What is this? That's a waste of paper. That's what that is. I can hand that to the, the ice cream man. Give that to him. So he can serve ice cream better. 
But he's not going to be, I'm not going to be a better pastor because I read this. It's a waste of ink. See, that's what I'm saying. You may say, oh, this is ridiculous, Eric. This, everybody knows this. No, everybody doesn't know this. That's why people are re- writing things like this. That's why evangelical leaders like Rick Warren say the biggest mistake that people make is to think that sermons will produce spiritual maturity. Oh, really? That's a lie. But according to Time Magazine, that's America's pastor. He's going head-to-head with Jesus' design for His church. There's a sovereign design. There's a goal of Christ. It's crystal clear. And some may say, Eric, you're not going to reach the loss if you're so, so reclusive, so focused on edification, so focused on maturity. You want to bet? Evangelists are given to the church. Teaching of the Word of God so that we'd be equipped, so that we would actually go out and proclaim the right gospel to people and people might get converted. It's, it's definitely right focus. Gather for edification. Scatter for evangelism. It's like Spurgeon said, too many people are not feeding the sheep, they're amusing the goats. Well, how long do we do this? What do we do? I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. Preaching, teaching, equipping, serving, building, reset. Preaching, teaching, equipping, serving, reset. Just keep doing it over and over again. It's really simple. Just wear out a path. Keep doing it. I mean, there's so much innovation, reinvention, and, and change. There's actually a series by one major uh, Christian publisher, reimagining everything. And they just, they just throw another subject on top of it. Preaching, evangelism. This reimagination or this reinvention is seen to be a virtue. So people get creative and they write books that everything must change. Well, everything's changing, all right, sadly. But this doesn't change. The ministry of the gospel is clear in the Scriptures what we're supposed to do. You might recall about ten years ago, all the fad was the church growth movement. Well, now Willow Creek, the, the pioneer, by and large, of this church growth movement, had a, figured out a problem about a year ago, and they, they dispatched, as they do so well, their studies. And they did a study of their church. And they, they broke up the, the demographic of the church into four different categories. The first category was the unbeliever. I think they call it Harry or something like that, or Sally. That's original, right? Un, unbeliever. And then they got these other people investigating Christianity, uh, probably new converts, uh, committed and maturing. Whatever that means as far as a Christian. But that's, the, that's their survey of how they do it. I don't agree with it. But that's who they surveyed. Guess what? This first group of people gave them a 10 out of 10. The unbelievers said, you guys are doing awesome. Great job. 100%. You're meeting all my needs. I'm really happy when I come to Willow Creek. The next group went down. The next group, even lower. By the time they get to the people they were saying were actually Christians, maturing people, they were giving them like the equivalent of an F. It led Bill Hybels to say, we made a mistake all the money we spent was a mistake. All this reinvention stuff was a mistake. They said things like, we're not being fed. We want more meat of the Word of, the God, Word of God. We want more serious-minded Scripture taught to us. We want to be challenged more. And those are quotes. So what did they do? They ran to Ephesians 4 and did it exactly the way the Bible said, right? I wish they would have. That would have been awesome. 30,000 people and then all the churches that are affiliated, some of the churches in our own town, maybe they'd get on board and do what the Bible says. Oh, that would be awesome. But you know what they did? Quote, we take out a clean sheet of paper and we rethink all of our old assumptions. Replace it with new insights. End quote. Give me a blank piece of paper. We'll start over. Wish they just opened Ephesians 4. It's so simple. It's so clear. I remember when we first came to OBC. We don't have everything figured out here, but we're trying. We, I think we got this nailed. This is what we're supposed to be doing. Trying it the best we can. And I'm brand new here. I don't even think I could spell pre-millennial and much less define it. And uh, this was back when Pat used to eat pancakes and syrup and took me out to Village Inn and sat down. And I, think, I found out later he was being a shepherd trying to make sure I wasn't a wolf or something. And he sat down and kind of lovingly cut me off in a bits to my rambling and going on. He said, hey, listen, I'll tell you what. 
at OBC, we, we don't have an identity crisis. We know what we're here for. We know what we're supposed to be doing. It's real simple. I study the book. I get up and teach the book. I equip you to do ministry, and you go serve, and you encourage one another. At the end of the day, we'll be more like Jesus Christ, and he'll be glorified. Sound good? I was like, yeah, that, that sounds real good. That's simple. That's great. Thankfully, it hasn't changed since then. That's what it's all about. Ephesians 4. We're in the midst of the sovereign Christ's mandate for his own church, which, let me remind you, he purchased with his blood, and he has written it down on clear white paper so that we would know exactly what he wants us to do. And this is the means by which he's going to bring about the realization of his sovereign ownership over everything. He's given gifts to his church, and some of which are pastor teachers who actually need to teach and equip the saints for service so that the body of Christ will be built up. The scripture could not be more clear. So it's left to make me conclude and say, pastors who are not doing this, churches that are not doing this, are one of three options, maybe four, I don't know, but at least these three. Ignorant of what the Bible says. Don't believe what the Bible says. Don't care what the Bible says. And any one of the three are reproachable. The Bible is just that clear. Well, how long should it be done, Paul? How long should we preach, teach, equip, serve, build, mature, reset? How long should we do it? Look at verse 13. Great word. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure and stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Paul does give a timeline for this. You keep doing this. You keep resetting until these three benchmarks are met. The first one he gives is the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. This, this faith here is, is, is the objective truth that's been spoken and given to the church, this body of doctrine, until we are all united and aimed around this, not just unity for unity's sake, but unity in the truth, until there is a united faith, and we'll talk more about that tonight at 6 o'clock, really approaching biblical unity in the first six verses of this chapter. It's a hearty agreement with the objective revealed body of truth for the once for all delivered to the saints' faith, as Jude would say. And this presupposes that we are not fully united in this quest. Because he says, until we all attain to the unity of faith. So we need to do exactly what the Master says, making sure that we are pursuing this unity. And compounding it with this unity is with knowledge, and knowledge always goes with unity. We don't just have empty unity. We have unity according to knowledge, unity of the faith according to knowledge. And it's knowledge of the Son of God. It's a proper understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Until we are all properly understanding exactly who Christ is, exactly is what He's done, He's practically who He is, we're all to be doing this until that happens. There's still another sermon to be preached. There's still another Christ-exalting conversation to be had. There's still another time to pray with another believer because we have not yet reached the unity of the faith. We have not yet reached the knowledge of the Son of God fully. So we keep studying, we keep preaching, we keep teaching, we keep equipping, we keep serving, we keep building, we keep maturing. And that's what it says in the next phrase, to a mature man. So now Paul goes on with his timeline, not just unity and knowledge, but also pointing at maturity. This is what comes with solid Bible teaching within the context of humble Christian service. There's a unity around Christ and His gospel. There's the teaching of the truth. There's an increasing understanding of who Jesus is and what He has done. And then there are maturing Christians. But notice Paul doesn't say, until you all get there. As if he's over on the sidelines like an NFL coach giving you signals. No, he's in the huddle with you. He said, until we all get there. That is Paul saying, I'm not there. I need you and you need me. We need each other. Until we all get there. And to ratchet up even further, Paul says, until we all attain the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. Leading into this chapter, in chapter 3, verse 19, Paul prays that believers would in fact be filled up to all the fullness of God. And now he's saying that's the the goal of the church. That would be a great prayer to adopt for all of us. That this church would would be growing in the knowledge of God, being filled to all the fullness of God. And then you see the model. 
the measure and stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. There's a, there's a goal of, of having you as a Christian look like Jesus Christ, look more like Jesus Christ than you did this morning, last week, last month, last year. We're supposed to be growing. It's all about transformation. I mean, everybody today is preaching life transformation. Dr. Phil, Oprah, politicians, health club people, high schools, etc. Everyone is talking about transforming your life. Everyone wants to see your life transformed. But the church is the only place where you're talking about Christ transformation, where you're actually going to look like Christ, and that is the goal. He applies His gifts in His church to conform His people into the image of the Son of God. And this is Christianity, not moral anity or Oprah-anity or Eric-anity. It is Christ's church. And we're in the process of being conformed into His image. I like what one Bible teacher said, the glorified Christ provides the standard at which His people are to aim. The corporate Christ cannot be content to fall short of the perfection of the personal Christ. It's a great, accurate, concise statement. We should never be content as a corporate body until we are collectively conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sovereign head, the one who bought the church, the good shepherd, has given clear requirements, clear commands for his church. So let me ask you, where do you fit in here and how are you doing? Do you see the preaching of the Word of God as necessary in your spiritual growth? Do you realize that God has given particular people to this local church right here for the purpose of equipping us that we might function properly in the body and affect the proper working of the church? Do you realize that the person that sits next to you in care group or even in the pews, or at your dinner table, actually need you in the body of Christ to be functioning properly? And you need them. This was a life changer for me. I remember studying it a few years back. In light of Ephesians 4, I realized that that Pat was that guy for me. He, He was the guy that God has gifted and put here to teach me. He he was, he was a, a, the person that God has sent to Omaha Bible Church to preach the word so that I would function properly, that I wouldn't be a disfigured Christian, that I wouldn't have deformities as a Christian, although that's arguable, but that I would be being conformed into the image of Christ. And that just revolutionized everything for me. I looked at him totally differently. I want to pray for him. I want to encourage him. I want to help him any way I can so that he can do what he's supposed to do here and so that he can get the glory for Christ that he should in the preaching and teaching of the Word. I hope you see that. We need the teaching of the Word. We need to be equipped so that we can use our gifts properly and edify others. So let me ask you, where are you serving? Where are you individually serving in this body? You may be brand new. This may be your first Sunday. I'm, I'm not really talking to you. But if you make Omaha Bible Church your home, where are you serving? It's not that I have to serve. It's that I get to serve. It's not out of compulsion, compulsion, but out of gratitude. Scripture says, As each has received a gift, spiritual gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace, 1 Peter 4.10. I'll say this as tactfully as I know how. Based upon what the Scripture says in Christ's design for building His church, if you and I are not serving, we are in sin. If God has given you a gift and you're like the man in the parable, you're burying it in the ground or hiding it in the handkerchief, you're in sin. You're commanded to use your gift to serve one another. Think of it in terms of robbing God of His glory and stealing the edification from others. That is the picture of selfishness. And not believing. 
what God is up to in the building of His church. You may be able to sit back and make fun of Rick Warren or, or Willow Creek, but if you're sitting back and not doing anything for the building up of the body of Jesus Christ, well, you're just as bad. Grab the bulletin. Find some opportunities to serve. Call the church and ask, where can I serve? Go up to ministry leaders and ask them. Stand at the door and hand out bulletins and pray for people as they come in. Walk up to people and serve them by talking about Jesus Christ and His greatness. Join the prayer ministry. The nursery, as we saw this morning, needs people in there. Go go serve. And sit in that nursery and, and talk to other people in the nursery about how great Christ is. And pray for the kids when you're in there. Pray that they'll be saved. Pray that they might raise up great preachers out of that nursery and godly women. Serve in the nursery. Serve in the church. Find something to do and do it. You've been gifted if you're a Christian. You don't bury it in the sand. And if you do serve, are you serving faithfully? Or are you just so good at it professionally, you just serve in the flesh and you get it done? No. You need to serve in the Spirit. Serve for the glory of Christ. There was a time when Omaha Bible Church had, what, 225 people? and Everybody in the church served. And now, a lot more people. A lot less service. So I bounce the ball to the Christian in your lap. It's your job. It's what God wants you to do. I don't know any Christian who's confronted with what God wants them to do and says, yeah, you know, I don't think so. Don't feel like it. Well, how long are we to do this? How long is this process of preaching, teaching, equipping, serving, building, maturing? How long is this to go? How long do we do it? Well, Paul gives a real good answer. Until we die or Jesus comes back. It's that simple. Until we all look like Jesus Christ or He comes back for His own. We just keep doing it. And keep doing it. Our work is never done. The pastor's work is never done. The Christian's work is never done. We are constantly to be locked arms in Ephesians 4, building up one another, encouraging one another, equipping one another, serving one another, and glorifying Christ together. Well, as we conclude, let's look at verse 14. Paul draws a marked contrast here. He says, as a result. As a result of what? As a result of the clear bullseye on Christian maturity. On On the fact that he assumes that we will be growing, that we will be getting mature. He says, we are no longer to be children. You see, Paul draws a contrast here. These little children with the previous term, mature man. We're no longer to be little children spiritually. We're to be growing adults. And he goes on to describe the dangerous characteristics of spiritual children within the church. Look what it says. Tossed here and tossed there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. It's a picture of immaturity expressed by ignorance, instability, vulnerability, and weakness. Imagine with me, if you would, a toddler at sea sitting on a raft and just being taken about. Were you on a rudderless boat trying to navigate your way to Europe? Being carried about by the will of the wind on top of those merciless waves. Well, the winds are doctrine or teaching to susceptibility or vulnerability to false doctrine. Children we think of as immature and vulnerable and susceptible to to those who are stronger than them. Think of those merciless waves at sea. So too here, spiritual children, they lack the ability to stand firm and evaluate various forms of teaching. They're easy prey for theological predators. Paul, Paul really uses some graphic terms here to describe the ministry of these evil men. He says the trickery of men. Literally dice playing. Metaphorically, it's used to express trickiness, underhandedness, cheating. It'd be like the guy in New York City that you probably wouldn't walk up to and give your money to to play the game. Because he's probably going to take it in your watch, right? Tricky, underhanded. And I do have something against New York, by the way, just in case you're wondering. As someone from Massachusetts, I'm just trying to lighten it up a little. 
craftiness. He goes on, he intensifies dice rolling. It's deceitful, it's underhanded. Each time this word is used in the New Testament, it's negative. Paul uses it of the devil himself when he talks about him preying upon Eve and her weakness. So here, likewise, it's used to describe the ministers of Satan in their promulgation of error as they assault and prey upon the immature and the weak. The tricky dice rollers, they're crafty. It goes even further and says they're deceitful scheming. This could be defined as the well-thought-out, methodical art of leading astray. Paul uses the same term in chapter 6 to, to group it together with demonic activity. So they're tricky, crafty, deceitfully scheming. And Paul says again, don't be like the children, vulnerable to manipulation, unstable, weak and ignorant, biting at every theological fad that comes down the pike. Don't be tossed here and there by these various doctrines that stem from underhanded, cheating, dice-rolling ministers of Satan who desire to prey upon you like some vile spiritual predator. No, don't be like this. Don't be a child. You mustn't be characterized by immaturity, but rather, Christian, be characterized by growth in maturity. For this is the good shepherd's design for his sheep. Look at verse 15 and 16 as we conclude. He says, But, contrast to the vulnerable, the weak, the immature child. Don't be like that. But speaking the truth in love, we, we, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I love the little phrase right there. We are to grow up. I preach that sermon to myself regularly. Eric, grow up. You're not done yet. You need to grow. You need to grow spiritually. You need to get more mature. You need to study the Word. You know what? You need to do it because God needs to be glorified in your life, but your brothers and sisters need it. So run ahead. Grow. You have a family to lead, men. Grow up. Women, you have women to disciple. Grow up. Kids, if you're believers, you need to grow up spiritually. There's a God to be glorified. He means to get His glory through mature Christians that make much of His Son. So we need to grow up. When did biblical maturity and theological precision become so negative? You ever notice that? People toss around doctrine in pejorative terms. Oh, I know it's not some doctrinal thing or I'm not trying to be a theologian or anything. You know what? Be doctrinal. Be a theologian. Know the Bible. Grow in maturity. Please. You should study the Word so you can be mature. Because the people that don't know theology in the Bible end up on a raft in the middle of Satan's ocean being tossed here and there mercilessly. There's a proper working for the body of Christ Just like our bodies have ligaments and joints, so too we as a church have ligaments and joints. If we've ever been injured, hamstring or ankle or something, you'd know what a dysfunctional part of your body does. As a church, we must all be functioning properly together, building one another up in love. The goal is maturity and the means is preaching, teaching and equipping. One evangelical leader said, Your preaching and prayer will not grow your church, but rather your skill. Wrong. Skill is for salesmen and professionals. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ does not need skilled men who rely upon their abilities and turn around and congratulate themselves for their innovation. Instead, we need men drafted by God for the work of service who feel like Paul, wholly inadequate for the ministry, who realize that they are nothing more than a clay pot so that God would get the glory and the church would function properly and that they would preach, they would teach, they would equip, they would serve and they would build and they would reset and do it again and do it again and do it again. And at the end of the day, this church might grow. And if God would bless it numerically, great, but we want it to grow spiritually in depth. That's God's will. It's just that simple. It's not easy work, but it's what Christ has said He wants us to do. He's applied the means... He supplied the motivation, Christ in His glory. And He wants you to be mature. He wants you to be mature. 
He's gifted the church with gifts, gifts, so that you can be built up in knowledge and understanding, so you can be equipped for service, that this body would be forged together in unity, and that you would serve and function properly within the body, contributing to the growth of those around you. And in the process, this is the greatest thing. Christ is pleased to make known His greatness in the church as He transforms lives and we say, isn't He great? Look what He's done to your life. How do you do it? Preaching? How do you do it? Serving? How do you do it? His power? Isn't that awesome? God, He's excellent. He is the King. Look what He's done to my life. He is the King. Look what He's done to your life. But the surpassing power will not rest upon us, but on Him Christ Himself. We will all stand before the One who purchased the church with His blood, the great and glorious Shepherd of our souls, and we will, we will give an account for what we've done. May God forbid that we say that we did what we did because so-and-so was doing it. To our everlasting shame. Instead, may we say that what we did was because you, Lord, you, you are good and loving Master. You've commanded it. And we've done exactly what you said. It was hard, but you were good. Even in our weakness, we sought to please you. We just followed the book, Lord. That's what we wanted to do. This is his plan. This is his plan. It's clear. It's hard, but it's clear, and he's great. So let's be faithful. Let's be more faithful today than yesterday. Let's be more faithful tomorrow than today. Just continue to forge ahead knowing that Christ wants us to grow up into the image that belongs to Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You this morning for time together to look at these truths, to see Your will. It's so good to read Ephesians, to look in here and to see Your plan that all things might be summed up in Christ, things on, in the heavens and things on the earth. This is Your purpose. So may we trumpet loudly, clearly, boldly, and lovingly the greatness of our Supreme King. May we serve fervently with the the power that You supply. May we be gospel-boasting Christians, Christ-magnifying Christians. May You be kind to bless this church for many years that many people would be growing into the image of Christ, that truly Christ would get His glory here in this local assembly. And we would have great joy in that process because it's what you want us to do. And we would be blessed in keeping your commandments. We pray these things for your namesake, your glory, and that your will would be done. In Jesus' name, amen.